Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. This week's episode is brought to you live from Bracken House, where we're joined by a conference room full of you, podcast listeners. We'll be taking questions from our audience, as well as diving into all the topics that are on our mind, a real tour through everything in the UK politics this week. We'll be looking at the battle of the Brexit mandates, whether the trade talks are doomed to fail before they've even begun. Plus, we'll be discussing rows in the Home Office between the Civil Service, what might be in the upcoming budget, and the state of the Labour leadership race. Our panel for this week's podcast is our top team, political editor George Parker, chief political correspondent Jim Picard, deputy opinion editor Miranda Green, and columnist Robert Shrimsley. If you like, you can all give them a clap. Thank you all for joining in the room and on your headphones. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics Podcast, thank you for coming. Then do subscribe to all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. We also, as you know, appreciate a nice review. So let's begin with Brexit. This week, the UK and the EU have released their negotiating mandate. And we've got a story which, by the time you listen to this podcast, will have been released Boris is ripping up the UK's political declaration. George Parker, can you begin and explain what the Prime Minister is doing with regards to trying to seek a Brexit trade deal? Well, he's publishing his negotiating mandate. So this is the objectives that Britain has for the trade talks. And we all know what they want. They want a Canada-style trade deal, which focuses mainly on goods, where incidentally the EU has a massive trade surplus with us and won't focus very much on services, where we have a big surplus going the other way. So on the face of it, it should be a reasonably straightforward, tariff-free, quota-free deal to be able to secure. The only problem is the EU want to apply a load of strings to the deal, the so-called level playing field provisions, to make sure that we, as this big offshore competitor, don't try and engage in a race to the bottom on regulation and state aid rules and all the rest of it. Now, Boris Johnson sees this as an important point of principle that we should be able to set our own rules on climate change, environment, state aid rules, and that's what we're going to see in this negotiating UK mandate. The only problem is that back last October, Boris Johnson signed a political declaration with the EU and put his name to it, where we agreed that we should have a robust set of commitments to ensure a level playing field to reflect the fact that the UK is very, very close, in the case of Northern Ireland, extremely close, to the EU. Now, Boris Johnson, we are told today, is... I'm not going exactly say that this political declaration wasn't worth the paper it was written on, but effectively, he's junking it. And what we're told is that the key reference point is not the political declaration that he signed, which is not legally binding, but the Tory manifesto. That's what we should look at. So this has gone down extremely badly, and Michel Barnier was so annoyed yesterday, he even banged his podium in Brussels and said, all the words count. So there you are. That's the uh, row of the next 10 or 11 months in a nutshell. Great. It wouldn't be a podcast without talking about a Brexit round, would it? Now, what's the key phrase Downing Street are talking about this political declaration? Because they say it was signed in good faith. You know, 
they expected Boris Johnson to keep to his commitments, but Downing Street says something different. Well, Downing Street say that um, the other side, the EU, aren't sticking to it either. They say that the other side aren't treating this like a tablet of stone, and they think it's slightly quaint that journalists like me are reading out sections of this declaration, which we were told was quite important, and they're saying, well, look, the EU left out that paragraph there and that paragraph there. The essential bit is the most important bit, this level playing field provision. The UK is trying to completely rewrite what was on the page last October. So, Robert Shrimsley, let's have an overview look at where these talks are then. It feels like at this stage we're going to go absolutely nowhere and the talks could collapse in the spring because the both sides are quite far apart on this. And if the UK is saying we're not interested in any of these commitments on state aid or a level playing field, then how can we ever do a trade deal? That's definitely one of the realms of possibility. I do think, just picking up from what George said, you know when you buy a new iPhone and there's all those terms and conditions you have to sign up to and you don't read them? You hit I agree, yeah. That was basically, it seemed, how Boris Johnson treated the withdrawal agreement. This was, I need it for the general election, except, you know, what do you mean paragraph four said a level playing field? And I think Uh, there is an element of that going on. The one thing that I think we all have to keep in mind is that this is a negotiation. We're at the start of it. People are going to take their most extreme positions at the start and then see where they can work towards agreement. And George wrote something earlier in the week talking about where there is a landing zone. I think most people looking at what's going on can see how a deal can be done, a very minimalist deal. As you say, zero quotas, zero tariffs, that's clearly available. But there has to be a degree of goodwill and there has to be a readiness to strike an accord on access to British fish, on the extent to which if you're not going to actually sign up, commit yourself to a level playing field, that at least you create a mechanism whereby you can be judged and punished for it if you breach the rules. And I think most people looking at this think, well, that's probably where it's going to land. But there are quite a number of crunch points coming through it. The fish agreement is meant to be reached by, I think, the middle of the year. The decision on whether to roll over the transition period is meant to be decided by the middle of the year. We don't think that's going to happen. So there's lots of moments where things can go wrong. In the end, it is in nobody's interest for a deal not to be done. So the question is, what happens in the last couple of months? I think the unfortunate thing is, we're all going to talk about this ad nauseam. Everybody's going to get really angry. And none of it's going to matter very much till about September or October. Well, it keeps us in business anyway. Um, Miranda, how much do you reckon this is about both sides just talking tough? Because as Robert just said, that's what happens in these negotiations here. And clearly from Downing Street's perspective, the thing they say is we've had a general election. We've got an 80-seat majority. We can now do what we want in terms of getting a Brexit trade deal. And they're talking tough to keep all the Brexiters in the cabinet. And of course, the cabinet is now dominated by people who campaign for Brexit in 2016? Well, I think there's a lot of talking tough, but I think there is also a a tougher stance genuinely because of what you've alluded to, because not only are they bolstered by the election win, which, as George has explained, they're now trying to use to kind of redefine the entire negotiating framework. We're also now post a reshuffle, which has ensured that everyone around the cabinet table genuinely is speaking with one voice on Brexit, and that's something that the reshuffle was clearly designed to achieve. Before the reshuffle, you still potentially had a couple of powerful voices there. You had Sajid Javid and you had the Northern Ireland Secretary, uh, Julian Smith, who had previously spoken out against the dangers of no deal. They have been got rid of, you know, so that they can actually talk as tough as they want and so that they can, if it comes to it, actually go through with no deal or a very, very minimalist deal, which means maximum friction on the borders. I think in a way, you know, after the general election, it felt as if we could all sort of draw breath a bit because we'd gone through this terrible cycle of 
crisis after crisis with Brexit. But I think, as you're suggesting, and as, as George is suggesting, we might be back there again in the autumn, in a sense, with the same conversation, i.e., will they actually go through with it? Are they really threatening no deal? I've sort of just come to the conclusion Brexit never actually ends. It's just a series of negotiations followed by cliff edges, followed by negotiations. We can keep doing this, as Martin Wolf commented to me, for the rest of my working life. <laughs> Jim Picard, can we talk about business's role in this as well? Because Michael Gove, who's the Cabinet Office Minister, who's meant to be the political brain behind these negotiations, has been meeting with business groups and businesses and has said to them in private, look, is it a deal or not? There's going to be trade in fiction at the end of this year. So you guys need to prepare because in some ways you can argue the deal set out in Mr. Johnson's mandate, all that's really doing is going to reduce tariffs. There's still going to be customs checks. There's still going to be extra things happening at the border that haven't happened before. And that is going to be a big burden for British businesses. Yeah, and I think the experience of British business groups ever since the Brexit vote has been one of realising again and again that politics trumps everything. So if you think about Theresa May's original speeches, she made it very, very clear that cracking down on immigration was the priority. Business came second. There's obviously the famous Boris Johnson quote about F-word business, which we can't say on a family political podcast. <laughs> and um, once again, they're sort of realising over the last month that they had the general election where they had the sugar rush of the Marxists, as they would say, have not got in. So we don't have to worry about nationalisation of everything. We don't have to worry about massive tax increases. Also, there was a sense that at least there's some movement. We're not stuck in this limbo of not quite knowing whether we're going to get Brexit or, or what kind of Brexit we're going to get. That wore off very, very quickly. And now they're back in the zone of thinking, our voices don't matter. The voices that matter are the voices of Blue Wall, which used to be Red Wall voters up north, people who voted for Brexit, and not us, the business world. And they're having to get used to the idea there's going to be friction at the border. And um, I was yesterday at the conference of Make UK, formerly known as the EEF, and Alex Sharma, who's the new business secretary, was making very smooth noises about how much he loved engineering and all the rest of it. I think the thing that a lot of people remembered was that Andrew Neil off the BBC came along and gave his own talk where he observed that actually my friends in number 10 aren't that bothered about just-in-time delivery systems. They're much more interested in things like 4D printing. And that didn't go 4D down. printing? Three or four. They <laughs> want printing in the future and the past. Uh, which dimension you're working in. But that didn't go down you're right the curve. It's all on Dominic's blog. 4D <laughs> all that. Now, George, let's just dig into a couple of details on both sides' mandate here. And it really feels the sticking point is going to be state aid in the level playing field because for Boris Johnson, for his chief negotiator, David Frost, it's all about leaving the EU to do things differently. And mm. they're not necessarily worried about manufacturing and supply chains and things in the past. They're very engaged in 4D printing, apparently, and many things <laughs> in the future. But clearly, the EU wants to stop that from happening. It doesn't want a big economic competitor right on its doorstep. So that feels of where all the tension is going to be at the initial stages of the negotiations and on state aid. There's this question that Boris Johnson has promised to move quicker and more rapidly and more interventionist on state aid. The EU really doesn't want that because, again, it gives the UK a competitive advantage. Well, there's something in the EU negotiating mandate, which is extraordinary, where they say that they're so worried about what Boris Johnson wants to do on state aid, that they want EU law on state aid to apply in the UK in perpetuity. Now, that's something that Boris Johnson is never going to accept. And Tory Eurosceptics now say, oh, that the Europeans have got this lunatic mythology, which is a phrase used by David Davis in our Brexit briefing this week, about the idea we want to deregulate everything and become an offshore Singapore-type economy. Well, the truth of the matter is that if you've followed the ideological intellectual 
passage of the Conservatives over the last 20 years, the justification for Brexit and even the EU was always the fact we were going to break free from EU regulation. So when they hear Boris Johnson saying now, well, of course, we've already got much higher standards than the rest of Europe and we give out less state aid than the French and the Germans, well, they hear that and think, well, what's Brexit all about if you don't want to deregulate? So there's a great deal of suspicion, which is why they want to nail it all down now at this point. So they have phrases in their mandate like using <coughs> the EU framework as a reference point. Now, I agree with Robert. I think there is nothing that anybody's said so far on either side or in the language being used which prevents some kind of compromise being reached in this area. And you may be about to touch on this. I think this whole area can be fixed, where if the Europeans can say they don't think the UK will deviate, um, because if we do, we'll lose access to the market, and we can say we can deviate, but we probably won't because we don't lose access to the market, there is a kind of grey area that could be exploited. The one <coughs> word that keeps coming up when people ask what is the real sticking point in this negotiation is always fish. Yeah. And uh, I hate to say it, but this is, it goes back to hunter-gathering and the place it plays in the psyche of Eurosceptics that fish is a big thing. It has to be settled, as Robert said, by the middle of the year. And if we don't get an agreement on that, that derails the rest of the negotiation. This will then drag through the summer and then back in the autumn doing the real negotiation. So, Robert, one thing on this thing about the level playing field and fair competition, Boris Johnson in his speech at Greenwich a couple of weeks ago said, we're not leaving the EU to fall behind European standards, but we don't need to say it in a treaty. And again, it comes back to this concept of sovereignty that we can deviate and do things differently, but we're not actually going to do it. Do you think when it comes to the crunch point, they will accept it in a treaty as some kind of baseline? Because he can say, oh, standards are going to be so high and beautiful and wonderful that it doesn't actually matter if there's a baseline in a treaty because we're never going to fall below it. Yeah, the trouble is you've got to trust Boris Johnson and then you've got to trust everyone who comes after him and you don't know who they are. And the European Union is a tremendously legalistic entity in which things are put down in law and they are codified. You know, and Boris Johnson's whole world view is essentially, wow, you know, we'll fix this and then I'll go and do that. And that's, I'm going to worry about that till tomorrow, so I'll get there then. And I think it's true. I don't think there is any great desire to water down most of the standards and most of the regulations that are in place. But there are some areas, pharmaceuticals, I think, is an area where Britain would like to divert. So there are places where it might happen. And the question I think that might dominate is whether you can agree that things will be dealt with on a sectoral basis or whether it's a global concern. And then you come to the issue, well, what's within the sector and what's without? So it, it rapidly gets very, very tricky. The other point I was going to mention was on the fish, which George mentioned. I was talking to one of the Scottish Conservatives a while ago, and he was saying, you know, fish is so inextricably wrapped up, not only in the future of these negotiations, but the future of the union, because it's such a good grievance point for Scotland if the fishing industry is sold out. And someone said to me, the thing is, what we can't have is the Scottish Fishing Federation saying we sold out Scottish fishing communities for London financial services, which gives them almost a veto on the whole process. That's a very, very difficult place for the government to be. And yet the size of the fishing industry, you may remember, is I it's think a the turnover is about the same as Harrods. It's a disputed figure, but it's a good one. Indeed. Well, um, actually, got a it's a disputed figure, but a good one. <laughs> um, <laughs> we can all Google it later. There was, there was a press release from the S&P came out this week, said four months till the Tory betrayal on fish. 
They're clearly lining this up already. Um, Miranda, as the yeah. real hunter-gatherer on this panel here, what do you make of the fishing route? Because Boris Johnson previously said, we're going to take back control of our waters, and we're not going to give it away. But then in the Greenwich speech, he actually did say we could have a system of annual negotiations. Now, the EU have talked about having a 25-year agreement. So there's a landing zone between one year and 25 <laughs> years with an agreement on fishing. Yeah, so I think the Scottish Fishing Federation, who Robert rightly says has been given a sort of veto over the whole thing, they actually want these annual negotiations. Like Norway. Like Norway. It's difficult. I think that George is right. The problem with the fish issue is it does have a kind of atavistic mm. power in terms of the anti-European Union feeling in the UK, which is how we got into this situation in the first place. So, you know, there are practical measures to be negotiated, as you say, between one year and, and the mid-20s. But it's also sort of satisfying this idea that whole communities in the UK were done wrong and betrayed when we went in. Mm. And if you don't repair that, and if you don't repair that grievance, what has Brexit been for? And I think that's what makes it a hugely kind of touchstone political issue. Can I just say one thing on the state aid, etc.? It's also really interestingly about who Boris Johnson thinks he is as a prime minister. Because this whole question. this phrase that you introduced, Seb, about I'm a Brexity Hezer, i.e. Michael Heseltine. You know, Heseltine used to say, you know, I will intervene before breakfast, before lunch, before dinner. If you're going to settle for a bunch of rules which prevent you intervening, then you're no longer Brexity Hezza. So who are you? Are you back to your Singaporean on Thames vision of post-Brexit Britons? Mm. All this stuff, it goes to the heart of where they think they're taking us as a nation. Indeed, and I think one thing as well is I think there's a real danger that if he agrees to a treaty that includes us locking into EU and isn't honest with the British public about this, we'll be exactly where we were in 2016 in 20 years' time when people realise that, you know, people may not have been fully straightforward. Now, the last part of this Brexit before we move on to the next thing, when I ask you all, we did this in our Brexit briefing email today, from 1 to 10, what are the probabilities of us getting a trade deal this year? Jim? Seven. Miranda? Seven and a bit. <laughs> George? I'm going to raise them both and go for eight and a half. Robert? I'd have gone for eight. Oh, well, I've gone for six, so there we are. Um, right, let's now move on to Whitehall and everyone's favourite topic, Dominic Cummings. Mm. There's been plenty of rows this week between the Home Office with Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, and Philip Ruttenham, who is the Permanent Secretary. Both have been briefing that they are not up to their jobs, that they've been very angry, and even the MI5 hasn't been sharing intelligence with the Home Secretary because they don't trust her. So, George, the row between politicians and civil servants is not a new thing, particularly between ministers and permanent secretaries. If we think about Theresa May and Dame Helen Ghosh, they had a falling out. Francis Maud and Bob Kerr leg, they fell out, and even Tony Blair and Andrew Turnbull as Cabinet Secretary, they all fell out and the politicians won ultimately. Is this row any different to those historic ones? Well, I think it is because it's become very personalised very, very quickly. And I think it was crystallised at the weekend when there was a briefing to the Sunday Telegraph by unnamed Tory sources saying that they had a hit list, or I think we can say on a family podcast, a shit list of named permanent secretaries that they wanted to get rid of in number 10. And that included the permanent secretaries of the Treasury, the Foreign Office and the Home Office. In other words, the whole high command of the civil service named on the front page of a Sunday newspaper. Now, you're absolutely right that in the past, ministers have fallen out with their permanent secretaries. That's quite common. Think back to when Gordon Brown became Chancellor and Terry Burns was the permanent secretary there and he was regarded as a bit of an old school Tory and they've quickly moved him out. But as David Davis said quite 
pressingly at the weekend, you don't deal with a management problem with a firing squad. Everything's done quite calmly. What you don't have is a blazing row, because the problem is Dominic Cummings and the government are trying to run everything from the centre, which is fine, but to make it work, you need to have a transmission mechanism to make the, pull the lever so it happens. Now, if you alienate the people who are going to deliver your policies, the civil servants, or you scare to death the special advisors, the political special advisors, who are also meant to make sure your writ runs across Whitehall, which is what Dominic Cummings does on a regular basis on a Friday evening when they all get together for their brief meetings, then you could be sitting in Downing Street pulling lots of levers and nothing's <coughs> happening. And you end up with the opposite of what Dominic Cummings wants. Dominic Cummings wants to have a permanent revolution. But the effect of all this is you could end up with total inertia and the exact opposite of what he wants. So, Miranda, I think the thing about this topic is that the people who are running this government are campaigners. They're the vote leave campaign. If you look at all the key cabinet positions, the key special advisors, they're all people who are very senior on that 2016 leave operation. They see the civil service and the establishment as a whole bunch of Remainers who try to block Brexit and all that sort of thing. So the reason they're briefing this and doing this in public is that this government operates in a constant state of war. And if we think about who is the government at war with the moment, journalists, the BBC, <coughs> Brussels, Scotland, the Scottish government, Ireland, probably Wales, uh, businesses, anyone, anyone else? Reports. What's that? The, the courts, the, the House of Lords, the Treasury, anything else? Mm. I think that's a lot. It's quite a lot to keep us going. That is exhausting, but is this actually helping them govern or is this just displacement activity? It's a hugely interesting question because I think it's not just to do with the inheritance of their experience in the Vote Leave campaign, where, of course, they were very successful, so they're buoyed by the feeling that it works if they push their way of doing things. I think it's also interesting to look at the way that Dominic Cummings operated at the Department for Education when he was Michael Gove's key ally and apparatchik there. Because the thing is, you cannot argue that British institutions are flawless, right? And it seems to me that actually some of the things that they're diagnosing that are wrong about the way that government operates and the way that Whitehall operates may well be true. But the question is, how do you do it? How do you reform it to make it more effective? Or do you just, as you said, declare war on everybody, which isn't necessarily the way to make it more effective? Because when they were at the DfE, I mean, education is an area I cover, so I know a bit about this. There, for example, some of their diagnoses about what needed to be tackled were right. Were right. And had they gone about it in a slightly different way, in a more conciliatory way, they would have had a lot more allies to deliver the objectives that they wanted. Mm. But in fact, then what happened was, you know, with a picture of Mao famously on the wall of Michael Gove's office, they declared war on everyone and it became sort of zealotry about we're surrounded by fools who can't deliver our agenda and you need allies to deliver your objectives. Just a really quick one on Miranda's point about the Department of Education, because it's very interesting. David Cameron ran the government in a different way, a kind of federal structure where you allowed empowered ministers to do their own thing. And the best example of that was Michael Gove and Dominic Cummings at the Department of Education, who were able to develop their own policies. I remember Dominic Cummings telling me, we don't tell Downing Street what we're doing, we just get on and do it. He's turned it on its head, so now you're disempowering all the departments and trying to run everything from the centre. Jim, one thing that Number 10 is also doing as part of this sort of war on the establishment is terrifying the special advisors. Now, special advisors represent the ministers. They have a lot of power within their departments. They can order around very senior civil servants, 
push media messages, push different policies. But there's been a bit of a revolt among the SPAD class. There's probably about 100 of these people across Whitehall departments on bands. A lot of them have quit, who have moved different departments. Again, it comes back to this question. By terrifying the special advisors, is it actually doing any good? Yeah, there's a lot of resentment among the SPADs about how they're treated by Dominic Cummings, in particular this comment before the reshuffle when he said, I'll see some of you back here next week, in a very dismissive kind of way. And they do feel like there is a bit of a, a reign of terror. On the other hand, they also contrast it with when Gavin Barwell was chief of staff at Theresa May, and they had the similar sort of meetings, and everything felt a bit directionless and rudderless. At least when Dominic Cummings comes into the room, people know what he wants. And actually, the Times had a story a week or two ago where they talked about two special advisors being kind of bullied, inverted commas, by Dominic Cummings because he asked them questions they couldn't possibly be expected to answer. And um, it's not really my job to defend Cummings, but what they were asked was, how many people are in your department? How many quangos are there? And which quango would you cull if you could cull a quango? And he'd asked them this question a month ago, and he'd come back to the two or three spads who hadn't answered the question. So that's an example of where he's accused of bullying. Was it really? And I think the other point to make in Dominic Cummings' defence is that Boris Johnson is in charge. He is authorising all of this. And it reminds me a little bit of where Jeremy Corbyn was sort of never particularly criticised by the Labour community. It was always Carrie Murphy's fault, or it was always the sinister Seamus Mill. It's never the guy who's actually in charge, and they ought to share, I think, some of the burden and responsibility. Now, Robert, there's been some more direct criticism of Dominic Cummings again. We do spend our whole lives just talking about Dominic Cummings, really, which was from Sajid Javid, the former Chancellor, who stood up to give his farewell speech in the House of Commons on Wednesday, and it was, on the face of it, very warm and emollient towards the Prime Minister, saying, thank you for all the opportunities, I support everything you do, but he did have some quite brutal words about those people around him, and he made a joke that I'm not getting into personalities, the comings and goings, and people, including the former Prime Minister, mm -hmm. Theresa May, were rolling with laughter on the benches about this. You know, what did you make of Mr Javid's intervention? I thought it was a curious one, in that... These resignation statements, they normally fall into one of two categories. They're either the self-justification or the revenge attack. And his wasn't quite either. It had a bit of both. It was primarily self-justification and setting himself up as a sort of fiscal hawk and I'm the man who speaks for sound money in the Conservative Party. On the other hand, he went out of his way not to wound except perhaps Dominic Cummings. He made a lot of jokes at his own expense. It was a strange resignation speech. It struck me as a speech of someone who hasn't ruled out coming back. And Boris Johnson has been quite clear about saying to him, you might want to come back. It was an attempt to boost the Treasury a bit, which he felt needed boosting because of the attempt by Downing Street to annex it. It's quite a strange thing, by the way, this annexing of the Treasury, because this joint unit that has been set up with 10 and 11 Downing Street. Joint unit has a handful of people in it, and the Treasury has more people. It's rather like sort of the Bay of Pigs. You know, you could invade a small part of Cuba, but there is the rest of the island to contend with. So I'm a bit sceptical as to how far it can go. The one other thing I was going to say about Dominic Cummings, however, is rather like Jim, I think you can make a defence case on this, which is that this government will never be more powerful than it is now. It is at the peak of its power, it's the peak of its options, and that power falls, and the capital that they have to spend drops and drops and drops and drops. And if you have a radical agenda, if you want to get a lot done, there is an argument for just going hell for leather at it 
straight away and getting as far as you can before you run out of the political space to get things done. Well, that's also because they're obsessed with the Blair example, aren't they? Also, Michael Gove, when he was at the centre of the Cameron government, was obsessed with this idea that Blair said after the event, I wish I'd done more in the first year, and that's when you should really go for it. I remember joining the lobby 12 years ago and meeting James Pennell, special advisor, and I still recall her saying, we feel like we have maybe seven or ten days to set our agenda, and after that, no one will be listening to anything we do. Now, let's just move on to the budget, which is coming in the next couple of weeks. We've had more stories about it this week, George. And, of course, Mr Javid talked about the fiscal rules here, which is something we absolutely love discussing at the FT. Um, what warning was he giving to his successor, Rishi Sunak? And what do you think Mr Sunak is going to do? Is he going to open the spending taps and allow not just capital spending, but day-to-day -day spending to ramp up significantly? I think he was trying to help Rishi Sunak a bit and the Treasury, as Robert said, because Rishi Sunak and... Sajid Javid are quite similar politicians. They both worked in investment banking. They both have quite a lot of money. They're both basically essentially fiscal conservatives. And I think what Sajid Javid today was trying to do was to try to bolster the Treasury against the people in the centre of government, i.e. Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings, who he said had very little interest in having sound money and balancing the books. So he said it was critical the government stuck to the fiscal rules it set out in its manifesto, namely that you balance the budget for current day-to-day -day spending by 2023. Critical was the word he used. And when this came up at the Downing Street briefing this afternoon, we said, do you agree it's critical to stick to your manifesto promises? And Downing Street said, we will have a clear framework to be set out in the budget. In other words, the manifesto commitment on that has already disappeared. So you can see the tension between number 10 and the Treasury on this. Essentially, the cupboard's bare. Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson want to spend a load more money, and they realise the rules they set themselves during the election campaign have tied their hands, and they're looking at ways to expand the spending envelope. It should be borne in mind that our fiscal rules are already mm. about the loosest of any G7 country. The money he wants to spend on infrastructure is borrowed money. It allows them to borrow up to 3% of GDP, £100 billion extra, over five years. But that's 3% already. If you start to then borrow on the current side as well, you're talking about deficits of 4%, 5%, which is quite big historically. I know borrowing is historically very low, but it doesn't sound like a very conservative-style management of the public finances. Miranda, this budget is going to be politically quite difficult for the government because on the one hand, you've got this desire to spend, to speak to those voters in the North, the Midlands and Wales who backed the Tories for the first time. At the same time, you've got all those people like Sajid Javid, like in his heart, Rishi Sunak, who want to keep spending low there. And I think politically for the new Chancellor, this is a bit of a challenge for him because this time last year, Rishi Sunak was a parliamentary undersecretary of state, which is the lowest ministerial rank. Now he's the second most powerful person in the government. His rise has been very, very rapid. But politically, nobody seems to have much idea what he's about. No one seems to know what he's gone into politics for, what he wants to achieve, and does he have the political skills to balance the old traditional Conservative vote, old possibly being the operative word, in the south of England with the new voters elsewhere? Well, you're right. It is a, a balancing act. And he is very new to the job and has had this meteoric rise. So there's a lot of curiosity about whether he's actually able to be his own man and run the Treasury as he wants to, mm. whether it's actually really his budget <laughs> or whether it's Number 10's budget. The Treasury put out a video of him this afternoon in which he was sort of doing the George Osborne thing, actually. He was out there in a high-vis jacket. Do you remember George Osborne's long-term economic plan? Those were the days. Were they? You know, yeah, so, <laughs> you know, but that sort of works. You know, you have to be out there in these circumstances showing <coughs> that you're doing something and that you're going to invest. 
but you've got to balance that with the traditional conservative core virtues of running the economy prudent. So it is going to be tricky for him, but I think that it was very interesting talking to Chris Giles, our economics editor, earlier today mm. with George, and he was saying, actually, there's a lot of excitement about whether they're going to try and fudge these fiscal rules, but it's not that outrageous to fudge them a bit because there are lots of places in public spending where, well, is this capital, is this day-to-day spending, is this actually investment rather than spending? And you can argue the toss, actually, about some of it being genuine investment. So, you know, they may find ways around it. I think on budget day, we can imagine Chris Giles will be very excited at the prospect of fiscal rules. <laughs> to some extent, there's a way that politicians are moulded by events and we don't know what's coming down the tracks yeah. in terms of economic events. And if you look at Sajid Javid, I always remember what happened to him when he was the business secretary and we had the near collapse of British Steel. And he was a guy who obsessively reads Ayn Rand, The Fountainhead, every year. He's meant to be this massive free marketeer. He was literally on his way to Sydney to do a speech about the joy of free markets when this crisis hit back in the UK. And suddenly, in the space of about a fortnight, he'd converted himself into the interventionist, quasi-state-aid guy who was going to save this secular declining industry. So who knows what will happen to Rishi Bond now that he's in the job. Robert, what do you th- sort of things are we ultimately do you think we're going to get on taxation here? Because there's been some talk and reporting this week about fuel duty, which, again, for a certain part of the Tory vote, is very, very important here because this is something that's working people, motorists, and, yes, a lot of people who are living in provincial areas outside of London. It's been frozen for 10 years, and the Treasury's under huge pressure to scrap the freeze because it could bring up to £4 billion, which could be used to spend on other things. But at the same time, a lot of those new Tory MPs are saying, please, Mr Sunak, do not scrap it. Well, the simple answer to the question, what are they going to do in the field, which is I don't know. Mm. It's worth remembering there are essentially going to be two budgets this year. We have the one now, and we have the spending review at the end of the year. So it is quite possible for the Chancellor to sort of set out plans that he doesn't enact until the end of the year and give himself a bit of political breathing space and the chance to prepare people for some of the less palatable things. But the fact is, he has to find some more money somewhere. Things are very, very tight. Most of the money that they want to spend has already been spent. He has to find new ways of raising taxation, and they've ruled out a lot of options. Mm. So apart from scrapping entrepreneurs' relief, they going to have to find ways and given the commitment this party has to scrapping sales of new petrol cars in the space of what is it 15 years mm. yeah. it seems ridiculous not to be taxing fuel so i think the fuel duty is going to have to rise the only question is whether he prepared to do it straight away or whether he waits till the end of the year but there is an argument with unpleasant taxes is to bring them in early and that gives you the longest amount of time before the next election. Indeed, someone in the Treasury said to me that really it's the financial year starting this April. There's one year where you've got time to do unpopular things for it to happen, for it to trickle through into the economy before the next and, election. And, I mean, there's lots of other things. George wrote a very interesting story a few weeks back talking about all the pension tax relief that you could imagine this government wanting to look at, looking at wealth taxes. And actually, a Conservative government that's trying to show it's not just for the wealthy might well want to have a look at those things. But my guess is the real nasties would probably be at the end of the year rather than in a few weeks' time. And finally, we come on to our last topic, which is the Labour leadership contest. It's still got over a month left to run, and we've been new polling out this week that suggests Sir Keir Starmer is on track for quite a decisive victory. So, Jim... 
the Sky poll really showed that not only is Keir Starmer, who's been the party's shadow Brexit spokesperson, the favourite from the staff, but an ardent Remainer who was behind the party's Brexit policy in the election, he's not just going to win, but he could actually win on first preferences alone in a system that's always gone through preferential votes in recent years. Yep, the poll that came out about an hour or two ago puts Keir at, I think, 53, puts Rebecca Long-Bailey at 31, and Lisa Nandy on 16. So if that holds firm, then he could get through without the whole preferential system. And I think what's quite interesting about this one is that the previous polls have just looked at the membership. This has included the registered supporters, who are the people who've paid a one-off £25. I hope they've got their money's worth. And also affiliates, who are basically the union members and, and people like that. So he is looking pretty secure. His next challenge, should he win, which we now presume he's going to, is phenomenal. And we've written not particularly kind pieces suggesting that he's not a kind of dynamic, exciting figure. He's very much the consensual figure. It's like there's been this shipwreck and they're all adrift and Labour membership are just clinging on to who they think can kind of get the ship floating again. They're not necessarily in a position of being about to win an election. I don't know whether they even think they are in that position, but he is the person who can unite the PLP and the membership who've been at war for three or four years. That is the belief, but that's only the foothills. The next challenge is how do you get from this position of barely having 200 MPs, you have to increase that by 130 to even have the most fragile, tiny majority government. George, why do you think Keir has done so well in this contest? Because he started off so far ahead of when it began. He's definitely run a safety first campaign. couldn't tell you a single thing he's announced or said he's going to do during the leadership contest, apart from 12 vacuous pledges that I don't think really mean anything. But as Jim was saying, Labour Party members seem to cling on to him. What is it about him? The Labour Party just seems to be tiring of losing elections. They've lost four in the last 10 years. And this poll that Jim has just been referring to, I was just quite interested. There was one question they stuck in there. It was, how would you vote if Jeremy Corbyn was on the ballot paper? Starmer, 40%, Corbyn, 28%, Rebecca Long-Bailey, 8 And that tells you that the Labour Party membership, it seems to me, have finally got fed up with this four-year diversion into electoral disaster and are now starting to see that they are in an existential problem here. And the thing about Keir Starmer, the reason he was ahead at the start and why he is ahead now is the blink test that we all have to apply to politicians. Can you imagine that person walking into the door of number 10 Downing Street? And I would suggest... Maybe a bit harsh on Lisa Nandu, I think it's run a quite a good campaign, that Keir Starmer is the one person you could actually imagine doing that. And he may be boring, but my only law of politics is that you oscillate when you have prime ministers between interesting, charismatic prime ministers to dull, stable prime ministers. It's all through our political lifetime. Goes, Thatcher is a major boring, Blair interesting, Brown boring, Cameron interesting, May boring, <laughs> Boris Johnson. <laughs> Yeah. And I tell you, all the and things, Keir Starmer right yeah, down there and, all, and all the things that people think they like about Boris Johnson at the moment, the sort of spontaneity and the sort of devil may care attitude, they will one day come to hate about Boris Johnson. And at that point, they will be looking for someone with a nice hairstyle who could walk into 10 Downing Street and bring some stability back to the country. Just quiz you one thing about that poll, though. Doesn't that actually show that Rebecca Long-Bailey's candidacy is simply just a vehicle for continuity Corbynism? The fact that if Mr Corbyn was running, she would only get, what, 8% of the vote shows that people who are backing her in this contest are only backing her because Mr Corbyn isn't there. Yeah, well, that's exactly the point. But the fact is that if you add up Rebecca Long-Bailey and Corbyn's vote, they still come in behind Starmer, which suggests that the people are now starting to wake up and smell the coffee. I think one of the interesting things about this is that 
the rise of Corbyn and everything around Corbyn, it was always a massive unknown known was whether part of the attraction of Corbyn was his personality, the kind of grandfatherly vibe, the fact that he'd been an eternal protester and he'd been kind of ban the bomb guy and he'd been on all these picket lines and demos. And he got this kind of history that was very attractive to both old and young left wingers. And the interesting question to me had always been, if you strip out the personality and you're just left with the left wing policies, would someone doing that have the traction and would discovering with Rebecca Long Bailey, who is a fairly uninteresting provincial lawyer, nothing wrong with her particularly, but it's the same reheated policies. We forget now, but when Corbyn came along, it was a breath of fresh air. And I think there was a disruption for Labour with the kind of new Labour centrist would do basically more or less the same economic policies as the Tories. You know, that is ruptured and that is not coming back for a very long time, whoever wins in a couple of weeks' time. Now, Miranda, yeah. so we sort of feel that Keir Starmer is very much going to win this, but what is he going to lead the Labour Party in what form, what policies, and most crucially, how left-wing is he going to be? Because if he goes from where the current leader is to somewhere where Tony Blair was, he wouldn't take the membership with him and would be in trouble very quickly. So it feels to me as if when he begins as leader, he's probably not going to look and sound that different to where Jeremy Corbyn is, and that will be the same for his shadow cabinet, which we'll come on to in a moment. But just about his policy, he will start quite left-wing, and then bit by bit, you can imagine him sort of like a crab, just ever so gently moving towards the centre-left ground. So by the time we get to 2024, we could probably be pretty much where Ed Miliband was in 2015. Yes, which won't be far enough. So I think they've got a real problem, because if this Labour leadership campaign feels like the long march, they've got a really, really long march back to actually sort of credible winning positions. And I completely take what George has said on board in that if in some way Boris Johnson's premiership sort of explodes, which is possible, Very possible. that Keir Starmer would look like, if not light relief, the opposite of light relief, <laughs> dull relief. And clearly his, his pain relief. Pain relief. Yeah, exa exactly. Um, I love the sort of dull after too exciting theory. And I agree with Jim very much as well. It's sort of the problem with the Labour left taking over the party is what do you do with a personality cult once your personality leaves? You've just got a cult. <laughs> you know, so I think it's going to be really interesting to see how Keir Starmer starts this crab walk that you've described back to moderate positions. But does he really want to do it? Can he do it if he wants to? Because, you know, you've now got this phenomenon of modern parties in Britain completely owned by their memberships, which is really, really tricky. Although I was talking to a quite left-wing Labour MP recently who said to me, actually, it's not as difficult as you think to dismantle the ways that the Corbynites have taken a grip over the organisation, the Labour Party, the the, exactly the different bodies, which means that they've had, got a grip. You can actually do it if you've got the membership behind you. My worry is that far from preaching unity, which is what Keir Starmer's been doing in this contest, as a way to then blackmail the left to shut up once he's in charge and he begins this journey back to moderate positions... My worry is that preaching unity means that he's not actually going to kick out the nutters. I want to jump in on this one, because I think he has one absolute gift available to him, which is all of the problems that the Labour Party had with anti-Semitism in the last few years, because this is one incredibly easy way for Keir Starmer to say, I'm drawing a line under the Corbyn era, I'm kicking out all the really awful people in my party, I'm going to be completely ruthless and vicious about it. And the truth is, when a new opposition leader comes to power in a parliament where the government has a huge majority, the public aren't going to look at them for very long. It is that blink test. And he'll have a few weeks of attention, and then no one's going to worry about the Labour Party for quite a long time. And if in that few weeks of attention, 
he comes in, he just says, I'm being completely ferocious about this. All these people, they're gone. People will say, okay, he looks like a, the right kind of leader, and I think it's an absolute gift to the next leader of the Labour Party. Do you think he will do that, though? Yes, I do. And he's also got the Equalities and Human Rights Commission report, which is due very soon, which is the perfect, I guess, well, weapon I mean, to there use. Is, there is that. quite an amusing aspect of this. All of the candidates for the leadership are saying, we will implement whatever the recommendations are of the Equalities and Human Rights Commission not mentioning the fact that they are statutorily required to implement these <laughs> recommendations. And, and, and finally, for our yeah. last question on this, Jim, the new shadow cabinet, so obviously because we're speculating that Keir Starmer's going to win, we're thinking, who's his top team going to be? And we know that a lot of the people in Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet will be gone. John McDonnell's going back to the back benches. Diane Abbott is going back to the back benches. Mr Corbyn himself may be dragged back to the back benches if he's not wanted. There's a very interesting question about what it's going to look like, some of the names doing the rounds, particularly for Shadow Chancellor, which will be a very important position, Shadow Home Secretary and Shadow Foreign Secretary. What are you hearing and what do you think? So, again, I'll be honest that we don't know who's going to get these jobs and Keir's playing his, his cards close to his chest. I mean, I had lunch with someone in the Shadow Cabinet yesterday. There's plenty of speculation around, and clearly Ed Miliband will be one of the interesting names who one would expect to come back and do a kind of William Hague you know, the person who's gone through the fire of the leadership and come out with a little bit more stature. and He's, he's a grandee a, now. He's a grandee and he's quite popular, I suppose. If you put him in the shallow chancellor position, that's quite a risky one because you're basically saying we are going straight back to where we were during 2010 to 15. There's speculation, of course, about Yvette Cooper potentially coming back. Hilary Benn's another name. There's also Rachel Reeves. Now, one... Yeah, Hardy. Exactly. <laughs> Hologram. Chairs of select committees have to give up £10,000 of extra salary should they take a shadow cabinet position. So there's that that they have to think about. And also, Labour under Jeremy Corbyn, I know people hate the phrase cult, but it did become a bit personality orientated, brackets cultish, to the extent where someone like Rachel Reeves, who is left wing, she's left wing by any standards of the British general population, is considered a kind of terrible Blairite figure by an awful lot of Labour membership. I went to a speech Rachel gave a year ago where she was talking about, a, I think it was a £20 billion a year new wealth tax that she would love to impose. She's really not a right-wing person, yet it would send out a symbol to the Corbynistas that Keir doesn't really like you. It would be certainly quite a display should he do that. I think we have to remember, going back to the conversation a minute ago about moving back to the centre, that Labour is a fairly democratic party on policy, at least compared to the Conservatives. And when you look at what they voted through Labour conference last autumn, 2030 net zero carbon, phenomenally radical policy. I can't emphasise enough what a radical policy that is. Total open borders, again, massively radical. If he does try and tack a little fast to the right, we're going to be back in a civil war quite quickly, possibly. And we're going to leave it there for this week's episode. Thank you very much to Jim, Miranda, George and Robert for joining us. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard and would like to see some more FT journalism, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Jack Denton. Until next time, thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.